Hello, 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 guys. Welcome to the new edition of Mind Podcast. Uh, how are you all doing? Uh, today, I should get a you know a bit of a pat on the back because we managed to squeeze in three episodes in two weeks. But um, uh, we 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 have a great episode lined up with you. Together with me is our returning champion. Uh, I, I I would like to introduce him as that first because he, this is his third appearance, I think, on Mind Podcast, and certainly uh, one of many more to follow. Uh, the public policy um, analyst. He's he writes on foreign policy, neocolonialism. He uh, writes, you know, uh, so there's some fascinating writing on media, and uh, his tweets are very insightful. Richard Sharma. Hi, Richard. Hi, Adit. It's great to be back I, I, with you. I don't typically say tweets are insightful, so you better not li- uh, let me down by tweeting some very obnoxious meme and people telling me what you can't across the recommendations. Oh, just just as I was diversifying my portfolio for the last few weeks, you know. Well, for the past uh, past few months, from uh, July August, I've been working very hard. Now, yeah. you know, the year is coming to a close. I'm posting, you know, some dank memes. I you know, I enjoy. Ironically, I enjoy bad, low-quality memes about geopolitics. So sometimes I throw in a few. You know, yeah, you have to add some garam masala to, to no, make that, the dish. No, but that's the beauty of Twitter, right? I mean, I, I, the other day I was seeing your talk with uh, uh, um, with uh, Kamal Sibal about in the Pax Americana and Jaipur dialogues, and we can do that. And we can share these obnoxious little memes that we don't know, and and I think that's that's the beauty of because you shouldn't people shouldn't be taking that themselves so seriously. Also, you know, there there should be a little bit of sort of um, mix and match going on. But it's it's it's, it's great to have you, uh, Richard. All jokes apart, um, how have you been? Uh, I've been uh, great, uh, busy with all sorts of uh, work, but very fulfilling. And now, uh, yeah, it's good to see you again. Yeah, the last time we talked was in well, spring or early summer. The reason I start with this question, and people are wondering why are they having a cordial catch-up, and the, the reason is because it's, it is a strange world, right? We, I mean, I want to delve into the first topic this week, Omicron, straight away, because... Mm-hmm. Six months ago, when we talked, uh, we were thinking, uh, "Oh, the wave two was very bad in India." You know, India was going through a lot, and uh, I mean, I lost uh, my family members. My grandmother, unfortunately, passed away uh, because of COVID in the second wave uh, in Ahmedabad. And then from there to here, it just seems like um, so much of the same is happening again with the Omicron, except. What we are hearing is it may not be as deadly as the initial thoughts might be, but of course that's not a risk you want to take with people, especially people if they are unvaccinated. You know, you don't want to cause alarm. And right now, I'm waiting for the science to come out on that uh, to know more on what is happening with the Omicron variant. It is, I mean, it is of course deadly, uh, more deadly than Delta variant. The the whole question is about the symptoms and how it affects you know lungs and so forth. But countries. Shutting down or shutting flights, and is that feasible? So one thing is amping up vaccination rates, helping countries in need. The other thing is should countries shutting down travel from certain countries? There's a lot to unpack about the Omicron variant, and well, especially about the re- reactions to it from various yeah. countries. That uh, first of all. Uh, Credit goes to the scientists, uh, scientific community, and researchers in South Africa for identifying this variant and sharing it with the world. Uh, and uh, this was after the variant had been detected in other countries. 
in yeah. the Netherlands, in Belgium, in Germany, you know, one week, two weeks before South Africa went public with it. Mm. And uh, who was rewarded and who was punished? South Africa was punished. All its neighboring countries were punished. That Initially, they started calling it the South African variant until the WHO stepped in and called it Omicron. So that was very, very bitter uh, experience, mm -hmm. I think, for many people in, uh, in Africa and in uh, developing countries uh, as a whole, that uh, there are very few fields in which people in developing countries are the leaders. Now, pharmaceuticals is one where India is a leader. Uh, research into pandemics because of the HIV AIDS crisis in Southern Africa is highly sophisticated. They have very good researchers there. And when they, in good faith and transparently, shared this information, their, their country was punished, even though there have not been any deaths because of Omicron in South Africa. And the, the cases are spiking in mm -hmm. countries like the Netherlands, like Belgium, like uh, Austria, Czechia, and Slovakia. No one is, you know, putting Central European or Western European countries onto a no-fly list or, or blocking them from exactly. That, that that is my question. So when you block African countries and not block the other countries where there have been more cases detected, right? Smacks of some sort of a, a loaded attitude towards that the 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 countries, the African countries, you know, will not be punished, but these guys, dang it, they're going to be punished. And you're like, yeah, so you can do it because it's easy. You can get away with it. There's no repercussions. What will Botswana do? What will Mozambique do? What will South Africa do? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it, but if you try doing this with the UK, if you start, try doing this with Germany, which is what, yeah. Yes. And uh, you, I only saw one country that uh, within the developed world, within the Western world, that immediately. Uh, put in a quarantine requirement uh, for people from these countries, so from the UK, from Belgium, from the Netherlands uh, and the Czech Republic, that was Switzerland. And even they were arm twisted over a weekend. So from, on Thursday, they put in the requirement. Within four days, on Monday, they waived it. So no matter how rich and powerful and neutral you are, you are still compelled to open yourself to these countries. Yeah. So that, that was quite uh, quite disappointing to see. but. It's still important for us to see. It's important for us to see uh, the mechanisms of how this neocolonial attitude towards developing countries still exists uh, among policymakers. No matter how educated they are, no matter how rich they are, they still see you know, uh, Africa or Latin America or Asia as these dens of disease uh, where these poor people are dying to come over to their countries yeah. and infect them, and they just need an excuse to close the borders. Because, you know, when you hold a hammer in your hand, everything looks like a nail. They don't like immigration. They don't want foreigners coming. They especially don't want brown and black foreigners coming. This is a very convenient way to do that. And then there was another thing about the Omicron variant, and that was uh, in uh, the naming convention that, uh, according to the Greek alphabet, the... the no, no, let's, let's pause for uh, two seconds here because everyone knows where this is going. And for those who don't know, shame on you. But I want Richard to explain this very carefully. That's why I, 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 that's why I gave a sh short five second preview. Please go ahead, Richard. All right. So as you've seen, uh, you know, from the infamous uh, Delta uh, variant, uh, yeah. the, the WHO has put in 
uh, a naming convention that is not well no longer by country that it was discovered in so that people didn't go nuts on uh, the Indian variant although it took them a while to, <laughs> to uh, yeah. replace that with Delta uh, so now that's how we got to Omicron however in the Greek alphabet you have uh, I'll pick from the middle so I so Iota K Kappa L Lambda M Mu N, Nu, X, Xi, and then o, Omicron. The last recorded variant was Nu, so N. Hmm. So the next one should have been Xi, X. But Xi is pronounced X-I, yeah. which uh, is a lot like uh, the leader of a certain <laughs> major uh, country, a certain emerging superpower. Uh, mm -hmm. So, in order to avoid any inconvenient optics of there being an XI variant, a XI variant, uh, they jumped straight to Omicron. So, they skipped a whole letter in the alphabet. But like, and we are talking about WHO being in whole, like, do they really think that uh, uh, that that person is going to be so offended uh, with it sounding similar to an alphabet name? And that just tells you if that person is going to be that offended, that just tells you how tolerant they are about many other things. <laughs> yeah, I, I wonder if, uh, I'm sure that in, they will claim in Beijing that mm -hmm. uh, why Beijing? We didn't specify any country, Ruchir. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we all know which country it is referred to. I'm just joking. Uh, uh, it's the same way like with, with Amit Shah. They'll say, oh, he actually collects all the jokes about him. So, you know, in Beijing, they'll also say that. But, oh, you know, he enjoys these jokes. But um, the WHO, in its wisdom, decided to self-censor yeah. to prevent any controversy. That's probably what has happened. And, and yeah. Uh, during the four years of the Trump administration, the, the U.S. Uh, withdrew a lot of funding and support to a certain U.N. institutions. Now, in that vacuum of funding and support, uh, China was able to push its candidates to a lot of important uh, positions. Mm -hmm. So now, the WHO can't afford to antagonize uh, a major holder of the lever of, levers of power. So they will take it upon themselves to prevent doing anything that will look embarrassing exactly that, that that is that is ultimately what it is yes because uh in in the west in you know developed countries they like to claim that they don't have a culture of censorship and they have you know freedom of expression and the like so how does censorship work it's self-censorship where you take the democratic decision to not publish you know, exactly. the democratic no, and, and, and then you had that WHO uh, chief, I forget, even John Oliver talked about this when he Dr. was asked, asked about, uh, no, no, not Dr. Ted Rose. Um, no, no, I mean, I, I know who, but I think there was a uh, the director general who was asked about uh, China. And he he uh, he said that uh, the the internet was bad or something like that. And then oh, he was asked about Taiwan. He was asked Taiwan, about sorry, Taiwan. Taiwan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. First he said I couldn't hear the question. Secondly, yeah. uh, he didn't respond. The third time he cut the call. <laughs> then they called him back. <laughs> and then he said I've already discussed China. Uh, that, yeah, that, that it, was very amazing. It, it, it was the most amazing thing ever. I'm trying to see if I can share that that uh, 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 30 second clip with our audiences in, 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 in the thing because it was the most magnificent clip ever. Uh, and, yeah. and, 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 and that's unfortunately how, uh, how badly this, you know, uh, 
thing is um, uh, things has happened so i, I mean I, i don't know what do you what do you make of this like what do you um, what do you uh, what do you make of the whole china uh, thing right now is is the, does the world have to contend now that this this is going to happen this is going to happen this way uh that what is going to happen uh, increased uh, involvement of china and uh, well no not just that in, of... not increased involvement sorry i should have been more specific i meant uh, i meant increased sort of uh, mo- self monitoring when it comes to uh, uh, china well yes uh, everyone knows which side their bread is buttered uh, you know, there are certain things you can do when you're acclaimed as a great hero of uh, free speech and there are certain things that you can't do uh, mm-hmm. and uh, you sensibly choose not to do them rather than get into trouble uh, exactly. they made examples of edward snowden they made examples of uh, julian assange they've also made examples of you know almost every publication that was involved in releasing wikileaks uh, releasing the data all of them have struggled financially since then because there's been a tightening of the screws after that governments didn't want to advertise with them anymore after that uh, uh yeah. government sources didn't want to give interviews to their correspondents anymore exactly uh, so. exactly so it's it's kind of strange but but and and, and i'm going i'm just going to show you guys this video on youtube and this is unfortunately what's happened taiwan's membership hello We, with the, with the I'm sorry, I can't hear. You. I couldn't hear your question. Okay, yeah. Let me let, let me let me repeat the question. No, so. that's okay. Let's let's move to another one then. When Iowood was asked about Taiwan, he stalled for close to ten seconds and avoided a reporter's question, but the reporter persisted. I'm actually curious on talking about Taiwan as well on Taiwan's case. Oh, I mean, I, I don't know. This is from a this is from a YouTube link, which I'll happily post on the uh, uh, on the comments. But this is unfortunately how how things have become, right? And and it's kind of sad. Yes, and uh, this is just the reality of how the world works. It doesn't work on idealism. Doesn't work on niceties. It works on realism, on power, yeah. and on interests. And, and, and this was even shown by John Oliver. I think he showed it. Uh, that's what I was saying earlier on a clip as well. So it's just kind of yes. kind of funny. Um, but and, but and I'll, I'll just add something to it. So just before we started uh, this uh, this podcast, mm-hmm. I saw a very nice uh, tweet from uh, a Nigerian in- intellectual uh, who's yeah. on Twitter. You might have seen some of his tweets uh, on your Nkuzi. Uh, yeah. So he he wrote uh, the West hasn't liked. Africans and like yeah. Asians as well for five hundred years, and it's oh. stupid to believe that they'll like you in the future. The only way to overcome this is for them to fear or respect you. So nobody has to like you; they just have to respect you or fear yeah. you. And and China has shown the way that yeah. uh, they they don't like the uh, Chinese government. They don't like the Chinese people, but uh, at a certain level of power. and that can be economic power and political power can be cultural power ideally a comprehensive suite of power so all 360 degrees yeah. then it's no longer in their interest to be open in their dislike for you yeah. and they have to work with you yeah 
yeah i mean I, i just don't see any other way of approaching the whole question um but but i mean what you said i think is it ultimately takes us to the next point what i was saying that moving from omicron right because you you have to sort of deal with this um first of all you have to get this attitude in the west that the scientists of a country if they discover before something before the west that doesn't mean that country is to be blamed for that variant because even even though like i see people like saying oh we should not blame any country for things and you're right you shouldn't start blaming countries and things like that but i see people on the west in the west in alluding to that country irrespective of them being told to you know uh, say so rather than no and no one no one bothered to actually even thank the south african scientists Uh, for many days on american news channels before they started announcing uh, travel bans from africa and stuff not even saying that so many people and then i'm i'm reading today right that now you are finding 10 people 12 people 13 people here and there and it clearly seems like those people were a part of one party one traveling party and mm-hmm. that party so it's not like we are in a community spread stage it is actually at a stage where there are people who traveled and got it so if you can just isolate those people i think we can you know there but as 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 far as as much as i advocate getting precautions which means you know masks and all should be there and all the mandates you cannot stop function, country functioning because economically you just can't afford it. so as someone who observes public policy geopolitics side do you think the world can afford a spate of lockdowns now uh, the world it's difficult to say because there's such a diverse range of uh, uh, economies so some countries some economies have the cushion to enforce another lockdown uh, mm-hmm. without too much uh, mm-hmm. economic discomfort mm-hmm. but that's very few that right. uh, even within the european union let's say in central europe or eastern europe mm-hmm. uh, another lockdown would be disastrous at the level of uh, businesses uh, because it's not like the government is compensating you that yeah. you lost your business uh, or even you know saying that oh here you know the government will pay your rent because your shop is closed and will give you know some unemployment insurance to your uh, workers because look it's the government which is ordering you to shut your uh, your business so then you should be entitled to some compensation in some countries yes the government does that they say okay there's going to be a lockdown for one week for one month and here is you know a lump sum amount you use this to pay your rent feed your family and put your workers on leave now if you don't have that level of you know fiscal maneuverability you don't have that much uh, you know, <laughs> i like i like the maneuverability uh, term yeah yeah because yeah, if you can't like make money appear uh, in in your budget mm-hmm. then then you have to make a difficult choice because then another lockdown would be electorally very very unpopular because uh, it's one thing to ask them to do it once people did it very happily now it's been a year a year and 3 months or a year and 6 months in some countries since the first lockdown people will start asking uncomfortable questions that what did you do for 18 months we already had a lockdown now we have to do it again is this the new normal are we supposed to be lo- uh, going under lockdown why did we get vaccinated it will contribute to vaccine hesitancy because then people will say oh you know uh, what was the point in us getting vaccinated if they're going to put us in another lockdown so now you're seeing hybrid lockdown so for example mm-hmm. austria has put a lockdown for the unvaccinated and said so that if you're vaccinated you live your full life do whatever you want if you're unvaccinated then you face a lockdown and this is a carrot and stick approach some countries are saying oh if you're above 65 
we'll pay you this much if you get vaccinated, you know, you'll get cash in hand from uh, the, the doctor. So just do it. Some are saying that if you're unvaccinated, then uh, uh, you cannot use public transport. You cannot go to uh, public events. I I know I, I even heard that uh, you um, what's the word um, uh, in some places they were giving beers and things like that like I mean if you get a vaccine you get a beer like in in America only there were a couple of states that announced something like that so it's, it's kind yeah. of strange and, and the, the problem is the vaccine hesitancy is I think it's, it's to some extent this does not come naturally to Indians. So when they were shouting about vaccine hesitancy, people like uh, Akhilesh Yadav, many others were making irresponsible statements. Mm -hmm. People said what they were. In the end, they still lined up to get a shot. I mean, still India is not fully vaccinated because ultimately mm -hmm. you do trust. The Indians do have that faith. Uh, in America, it's a whole different sort of thing. I almost find that there are two sets of in, uh, informations, <coughs> two sets of information that's being disseminated to the people and everybody is believing their own truth. And, mm -hmm. and, and and only what the version of what they want to. So it's it's just crazy what we find yes. out. Yes, it is. And it's it's a shame that uh, in a country that does, does not historically have a problem with vaccine hesitancy, there were people uh, who were fueling it, trying to create a Western-style vaccine hesitancy back at, during the first and second waves uh, in India and trying to discredit uh, Indian vaccines, uh, acting as you know, well, very uh, ham-fisted Pfizer lobbyists, uh, saying, "Oh yeah, Pfizer is the best. You know, we deserve the best." And uh, you know, to hold out, don't get vaccinated with these low-quality yeah. Indian ones. Wait for the special foreign one, which costs more. It costs more, so it must be better. It's the Rolls Royce of, uh, of, uh, of vaccines. Yeah, yeah. Maybe the next three mistakes of some author's life will be uh, advocating certain vaccines and not advocating others. But what? Yeah, and, and, and you know what's funny? So uh, these lobbyists and uh, you know Western uh, pharma enthusiasts in India were saying, "Oh, you know, why would you want just an antibody-based uh, vaccine? You can get the you know uh, RNA ones, the mRNA ones, uh, Pfizer and Moderna." Uh, meanwhile. Uh, I, I'm, I'm now seeing people in uh, in uh, developed countries, so uh, in, in countries like Austria, which are having this other way, uh, say that, uh, oh, everyone got the Pfizer or Moderna one, they got two shots, uh, maybe for the booster, they can get you know a traditional vaccine with antibodies, and then they'll have the full suite. So now <laughs> they're discovering that, oh, maybe this Indian one is, uh, is not so bad after all. Uh, yeah. And, and, and the Lancet said that uh, the efficacy is what, 77.5%, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, which is excellent, outperforms uh, a number of other vaccines. No, but I, I think it, it I, I have no, I, sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm curious myself on where the whole argument against this even comes from. Does it come from an informed position or does it just come from an uninformed sort of uh, 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 perspective on uh, 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 we, we want to be uh, we want to sound like the rebels of the Western take on it? Because in, 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 in the West, there are uh, and I'm no fan of the far left here, but parts of the democratic establishment do have a point that some on the right have fueled a lot of vaccine vaccine hesitancy and they mm -hmm. do have to counter them. 
right mm-hmm. in india that's not been the case in fact in india it's the so called left that has been fueling vaccine hesitancy not, not so yeah and the so called left which is which is supposed to be anti imperialist and anti capitalist is pushing for uh, yeah. some of the most uh, embedded western uh, pharma companies in like a system of lobbying uh, and नहीं <laughs> I saw some uh, uh, South Africans uh, complaining about this after the Omicron variant and the travel bans saying that uh, traditionally uh, big western pharmaceutical companies refuse to sell in Africa in uh, in Asia Latin America that's why there's so many Indian pharmaceutical companies like Cipla uh, that make generics you know especially uh, uh, the retroviral therapy for HIV AIDS Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an excellent documentary about that called Fire in the Blood about how big American companies refused to sell in the countries that were worst affected by HIV/AIDS so to South Africa to Botswana saying that oh Africans are uneducated they won't know how to take the pills on time uh, but uh, I, so there were some mm-hmm. South Africans after this uh, uh, Omicron variant and the you know punishment that South Africa got they said that uh, clearly western pharmaceutical companies benefit from not selling in uh, the developing world because then uh, there's no vaccinations happening in these countries uh, the original variants uh, start mutating and then you have an endless supply of new new uh, variants and then you get to say oh look at this african disease look at this indian disease these dirty africans dirty indians uh, you know they live in filth they keep generating these terrible uh, uh, variants we should all be scared Uh, and let's uh, let's shut down the immigration from these countries let's shut down travel from them we never liked them anyway now we have a convenient uh, solution everyone's happy the pharmaceutical companies happy the government is happy the voters are happy and uh, that's very unfortunate and it's very good that uh, that india has you know tried to uh, democratize access to uh, to vaccines and this is what what for 12 months india and south africa have been pushing at the wto to uh, waive the patent on the vaccine so that they can be locally manufactured and distributed in uh, the global south in the developing world and it's been blocked it's been blocked by uh, the developing uh, by the developed world it's been blocked by the us and canada by the, by the, liber- by the liberals in the developing world uh, justin trudeau and the biden yeah. administration which was, which promised to change the world uh, and make pharmacy fairer they have this uh, representative from california who sits with a whiteboard and talks about pharmacy uh, prices and things like that which is all great but then why don't you take it on a global level do only uh, and i i say this fully conscious that i am sitting i'm talking from us actually that many people don't have the benefits of insurance even in us more that problem persists even more so in the rest of the world so i don't yes. understand this uh, sort of thing but um, and one uh, other thing about uh, these companies that in certain countries in latin america they mm-hmm. were saying that uh, uh, so it came out that pfizer demanded this that they wanted uh, immunity from prosecution or lawsuits in case of uh, uh, any side effects among uh, local people that uh, because clearly 
their lives are valued less, you know, why should the company have to pay if uh, Latin Americans uh, develop some complications? And in lieu of this, they asked for uh, sovereign assets. They said that uh, we uh, want you to uh, give us your military bases, your naval bases as a guarantee. And then if uh, something goes wrong, then we'll use that to, to pay out. This is something that was very, very uh, neo-colonial, very uh, you know, mercantilist. And uh, I'm glad that uh, last week uh, the Indian government said that we will not be buying uh, Pfizer and Moderna precisely because of this uh, sovereign uh, indemnity clause and uh, asking for immunity from uh, lawsuits and prosecution. That's uh, but I, I, I want to I want to bring this to another point. It's a fascinating point, and I, I, I'm sorry we we digress to multiple points, and we were we were supposed to talk about sports and cricket in the end, which we will. Uh, but you bring up an important point about uh, 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 sovereign assets, right? And this mm -hmm. is something mind makers uh, we are very proud to cover this story that we did as a report. Very few people covered that China is taking over NTB Airport. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's the most insane, insane piece of news I've heard when they resume because they couldn't pay their debt. And a lot of us have been flagging this that African countries where China has made investments, they've purchased, like they've done stadiums and places like that. We saw this in Sri Lanka with the Hamantota port and so forth. Mm -hmm. where, you know, so how, how, how huge is this? sort of i i don't i wouldn't i don't want to use aggressive terms like threat and stuff but this concern it suddenly alarms people if sovereign countries like other countries start can start operating airports smack bang in the middle of the world elsewhere like what does this tell you right like where are we headed yes well uh, it's quite clever negotiation that they managed to sneak in a clause like that in mm -hmm. uh, in so many cases and, uh, you know, it's what they say, caveat emptor, the buyer beware that when you sign contracts for, uh, you know, soft loans, you should read the small print and you should ensure that uh, you're able yeah. to pay it back. And that, that is whether it's coming from China, whether it's coming from the IMF, whether it's coming from uh, the World Bank or the EU, Japan, the US, you should always uh, be very careful what position you put yourself in when you yeah. indebt yourself to another country or an organization that, yeah. uh, that there's various development models you can either borrow and develop your country but then your that gives you full flexibility on how to spend it and i must correct myself it was that they could if if uganda defaulted but then there's a, a story published in bloomberg maybe a day or day and a half ago uh, before your we recording which it said that apparently uganda's chief legal officer urged to uh, finance ministry to refrain from renegotiating the terms of an, uh, 200 million dollars Chinese loans as it, it may be able to meet its debt negotiations and mm -hmm. so the fears are unfounded so far because the loan came with a seven year uh, grace period so I uh, I have I have to I have to put that clarification because it's there but certainly there were many reports that said about the thing so uh, you know that, that's it, it is something to worry about yes and uh... Uh, if you follow him, uh, 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 or if you don't follow him, I would highly recommend you do follow him. So Branko Milanovic is a, a Serbian economist who has talked about this, that every country, uh, every developing country is given two choices when it wants to develop its infrastructure. One is you take a loan from another country or from the IMF or from the World Bank, uh, and then 
you get a large amount of money and you have more or less full flexibility on how to spend it. The negative to that is you are beholden to uh, your creditor who can one day decide, okay, you know, I, I was very generous to you in the past. It's time to pay up, pay up with interest. And mm -hmm. then what are you going to do? You know, what if the investment doesn't pay off? Uh, yeah. That okay. uh, you, you plan that we're building this airport, uh, we're building this highway, it will give us returns of 4% a year, or we're building this chemical plant, it's gonna give us returns of 4% a year, but the loan payment is 5% a year, and then, you know, or let's say your asset underperforms, it earns 2% a year, the, the loan remains at a fixed interest, and you find yourself stuck. So that's an issue that Yugoslavia faced, uh, that it was the most developed country in Southeastern Europe because it had access to American capital and then IMF and World Bank capital as well, for its size, it received the largest uh, IMF package in the world in uh, the early 80s. But uh, no matter how much infrastructure it built, it had an excellent highway system, it had uh, advanced industries, uh, it had a space program before the US did. Exactly. However, however, when these investments don't pay off, the, the loan is still due, and then what, in paying it back, they, they experienced uh, stagnation, so there was no economic growth for 10 years, and inflation, which is a terrible combination because it always leads to political instability. When the money in your pocket and your bank account becomes worthless with every day, and the, the government and society and economy is not delivering on the promise that you will live a better life than your uh, previous generations, then people get frustrated. And that's what led you know, to uh, sub-regional nationalism and uh, the breakup of the country was a very large factor in that. Now the other model is, if you don't want to take loans, then it's foreign direct investment. Then you say, oh, please come to my country, invest, you know, build this car plant, build this train factory, but then you have no control over how the money is spent and it's not creating basic at, at, at the risk of making a very dangerous statement, I'm going to say this. So you have two things. Uh, 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 you take FDI and piss off the communists in uh, your country or you take on loans from communists in other countries and then piss your every other countryman off when they come to take over <laughs> their loans. <laughs> so you, you, you have two options. <laughs> Pick yeah, your poison. Exactly. And, and this is the reason why countries find it difficult to develop because if you don't have access to indigenous capital, then you're dependent on either loans or on FDI. And yeah. both of them come with strings attached. The, yeah. the loans build your basic infrastructure, but that doesn't always pay off so that you can return the, the loan with interest. Mm -hmm. And the FDI builds, you know, townships and factories, you know, which are islands of development among uh, staggering poverty. And that's what we're seeing right now. The Indian model is the FDI model. That uh, uh, thankfully we haven't had too much interaction with the IMF and with structural adjustments since the days of Narsimha Rao. Uh, but it, it also creates a two-tiered society where we have, uh, you know, all these uh, fancy new factories and foreign companies and a whole ecosystem of people working in them, living in those uh, gated communities. But it doesn't always uplift the rest of society or improve their access to infrastructure. Fascinating, fascinating, fascinating. So moving on, Ruchir, from there, uh, there to uh, what we initially planned this podcast around. Uh, but uh, obviously, uh, li like all good podcasts, 
we 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 ran around the topics and then ultimately found what we really wanted to talk about uh, I, I, and somehow this ties into the talk you had about pax americana right because then uh, what is the counter to pax americana right do we do we talk about uh, 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 similarly sort of uh, sino like pax sino or something like that i don't know because pax americana uh, pax sinica would be the latin yeah, term no the, the reason the reason i'm asking is because uh, pax americana for people who don't know is basically american peace it's you know it's it's modeled after pax britannica and so forth basically post world war 2 uh, when the recession of Russia happened uh, after the Cold War, and then the U.S. started. It was for strategic peace, right? And that was used to justify so much. So, Pax Sinica is maybe, maybe, maybe that's what might happen in Africa. Who knows? Uh, Pax Sinica is still far away. There, there still has to be a, a period of two, uh, two rivals, uh, two rivals. And superpowers, and the yeah. rest of us trying to milk them for as much as we can. So, <laughs> so when, when, when two. Two dogs fight, the monkey wins, right? So yeah. be the monkey. Uh, the Cold War was an excellent period to be a non-aligned country because you could work both sides. If you were strategic enough, then yeah. you could say, "Oh, you know, give me money. I'm a buffer state against the communists. Give me money. I'm, you know, I'm kind of socialist, uh, and I'll I'll threaten to become capitalist if you don't give it to me." But, we we uh, can all be vassal states. <laughs> well, let's try not to be vassal states. So the idea, the ideal. Is to not become a vassal state, but no, no. I, you know the reason I use the we can all become vassal states is because openly the, the ideal would be if we were vassal states openly, but then pursuing non-alignment below the below the sheet, so to speak. <laughs> yes, yes, so, the reverse of what we actually did. The reverse of what we actually did, yeah. So uh, because that's how India's relationship with Israel was for the longest time, where we would never publicly say that we are with Israel. But then, if there was a problem, the first country you run behind was Israel. So it was kind of sad both both ways. So yes, but Israel is used to <laughs> used to yeah. that. I'm, no, I'm glad that is I'm glad that has changed. But but moving on from there, uh, now we're changing tracks completely because we we are running way, very short of time, so we have to talk a little bit about cricket and. Um, It's an interesting era to be an Indian cricket fan, uh, Ruchir, because normally our team we had no hopes from, and they always performed uh, uh, a little bit above expectations, um, mm-hmm. at least in the Dhoni era, uh, mm-hmm. where we did have some sort of hopes, but they performed with the Virat Kohli era. I I just think that the team is far better than the performances have been, and I and none in I mean none of that was more visible when unless we talked about like um, except for when we talked about. Um, Uh, t- test matches where we've have done well, but if yes. you look at T20s, we've just been horrible. Yes, but just I think uh, you you really hit the nail on the head with that. That uh, the team under Virat Kohli reminds me a lot of South Africa under Hansi Kroenke. That uh, yes, you know it was revolutionary. This guy came in, he played, you know, he led the team with a very positive and results oriented approach. Sometimes it paid off, sometimes it didn't, uh, and Had access to a galaxy of resources, a wealth of resources. So a very strong team, both at an individual level and as a collective unit. However, the the C word comes along in ICC tournaments. So choking. Uh, there have been uh, bad management, team management decisions uh, consistently for the past few years in One Days, in T20s, even in Tests. 
But uh, individual heroics managed to salvage the day and we got some very memorable results out of it. But yeah. we could have done so much better. So much. And for, for me, this is the direct result of the, the personality clash, uh, what was it, three, no, four years ago, in 2017, just before the Champions Trophy in England, uh, between Virat Kohli and the then coach, Anil Kumble. And uh, that led to quite a disappointing result in the final of the Champions Trophy. Uh, and then it was, the, the board had to choose between the coach and the captain. The captain was performing very well at the time and they chose the captain and replaced him with Ravi Shastri, who has a very, uh, let's say, smash them boys. <laughs> he has a very smash them boys approach to uh, motivating. Yeah. He's a motivator. He's not a a man manager, you know, he comes in and he doesn't, I remember him saying, it's not my job to tell them how to bat, how to improve their skills. My job is to motivate them and tell them to believe them in themselves. I don't want to be a, a schoolmaster who tells them, you know, do this, do that. Now, this uh, hands-off approach has led to inexperience showing in terms of decisions. So then you had this strange relationship where MS Dhoni became the mentor of the team uh, and uh, then his miserable final outing which was this, uh, the semi-final, the World Cup semi-final against New Zealand where what was the point of having him in the team if you shield him <laughs> until the very end and then the, the guy, you know, he's, he's on the older side, he's, uh, his reflexes are a bit slower, his eyesight is a bit slow, then you send him to to smash it, he was the one who could have grinded out the middle overs, and then you sent Pant, then you sent uh, Hardik Pandya. It was very bizarre uh, logic, and we're, we're seeing that now as well, that uh, there were warning signs throughout Yeah, at these ICC tournaments. Now, this T20 World Cup uh, was really yeah. the, the low point, where the team management looked, uh, looked clueless. And, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, People were saying, oh, this is the kind of performance you get when uh, when an employee has already given his notice uh, that he's leaving in three months. And then, you know, this is why when you give your notice, they take away your laptop and say, okay, we'll pay you to shut up and stay at home so you don't sabotage things on your way out. No, but... no unfortunately, that's what happened. And, and people don't realize because Kohli was so prolific before these tournaments that um, they don't realize the dip in his form, right? The fact that he has not been able to score a hundred in November in since November 2019 should be a concern to many people. And a lot of people who are saying that ah, beach may those six months of no cricket, I understand completely. But even if you factor that in, it's been two years and it's been over one and a half years of cricket, and he's still not scored a century. That which includes tests, one days and T20s. And some yes. very crucial test tours uh, to England uh, and Australia where he played a match, to New Zealand where he played two test matches. Even this test matches, he has not been looking fluent or prolific just like that. World Test Championship, again, Kohli used to be our big occasion player, never getting overawed. But it just like the way he's been getting out is so ugly. And, and that's why I always have been saying that and and Kohli is not that old, right? He's 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 33 right now. And to give you guys, and he just turned 33 last month. To give you guys a perspective, Sachin Tendulkar at 32 or 33 was uh, Sachin Tendulkar at in about 2004, 5, and 6. And he had that bad period too with the tennis elbow and things like that. But he com 
completely reevaluated and changed his game and 2007 8 9 10 11 those five years he was in insane form like if you look at his runs in england or him going to australia and being average during the one day series and then winning both the final single handedly for india i mean literally in the tri- uh, he scored a century in one and 91 in the other i mean they just couldn't get him out so uh, you either kohli has to completely reevaluate his own game or do something because i think age is slowly catching up uh, for sachin i think the biggest shot that he took out of this book was when he was to step out to the fast bowlers and smash them over the head for six he just couldn't do it with the back lift or hit the straight bat so the sweeps started coming in the cuts the pulls he became a more creative player and and i'm not comparing kohli and sachin i'm just comparing the graph they've had and the amount of cricket they play and uh, uh for anyone who gives me uh, ipl okay oh kohli also plays the ipl to ipl existed in 2008 and sachin actually played ipl in 8 9 10 11 and 12 and he, and I, i think yeah 12 was the last year when he was very prolific in the ipl also in year 2 and 3 one of the highest scorers while playing well so it can be done it just yes. it has to be the attitude has to change Yes, I, I I really like what you mentioned about uh, about Sachin and the period in which you know he had his uh, tennis elbow and he changed his game because what really helped him at that point is that that was also the time that Virendra Sehwag was uh, uh, really cementing his place in the team and took over the over. So now Sehwag came as the opener, the flamboyant opener who got quick runs, uh, who could play uh, you know uh, hook shots and pull shots and uh, and late cuts. well such a good focus on uh, a more traditionalist form of the, uh, of batting and that took some of the pressure off now perhaps there's a youngster waiting in the wings who can take over the old role that uh, you know was expected from virat and he can focus on uh, uh, revamping his game to uh, the situation he finds himself in Mm-hmm. but it's also good now i think we discussed this last time as well that it's it's great that rahul dravid is coming in as the new coach he's done a wonderful job with the juniors and with india a now the issue is from a coaching point of view he's not going to be any different to his uh, his good friend his neighbor his uh, karnataka uh, ranji teammate anil kumble because he's also from the same generation he's also quite a strict uh, taskmaster and it's the players who need to adapt that yeah they had a very cushy time under ravi shastri but uh, that didn't pay off the way that it could have mm-hmm. especially in limited overs and uh, i think what one person who uh, is truly the uh, the one to have suffered during this time is uh, is ashwin so our ashwin mm-hmm. has really suffered from not being given the exposure that he needs that uh, despite missing out on four tests uh, this season he still uh got 51 uh which is the highest wicket taker in in test uh which is seven more than uh shaheen shah afridi so 44 well, it is insane and and he, he would have gotten at least eight or 10 more the way he had been bowling but he just refused to play him yes and that's that's very disappointing that he was supposed to be aggressive mentality uh captain who is supposed to be results oriented you have one of the best uh uh bowlers in the world and you refuse to use him meanwhile like look at the team that uh, australia used to win the the world t20 now it's uh, you know full of what uh, sanju manju would call bits and pieces players 
Uh, when I see when I see Glenn Maxwell bowling, I just see a white Nikhil Chopra. He has the same Nikhil Chopra uh, action that I remember from my youth. I was like, you know, look, Glenn Maxwell and Nikhil Chopra also once scored uh, uh, 60 runs and 60 balls. And the no, no, the, no, no, and Nikhil Chopra has a double or a triple century in first class cricket. Let me look this up. I have to. Uh, some, some, a double some, century. Yeah. A double century, I think. Some uh, some strange, huh, but no, why did I look that up? <laughs> I yeah, whenever I think Glenn Maxwell bowling, I just get uh, you know nostalgia for Nikhil Chopra. That uh, you know what what was missing in Nikhil Chopra that uh, is you know is in uh, uh, Glenn Maxwell. Yeah. But now, no, I, I, I correct you. Not, not, not a double not a double or a triple century. It was one thirty two not out. I think it was another bowler that got uh, a first class uh, double hundred or triple hundred. I forgot who it was. But Dinkley Chopra mm-hmm. still has one thirty two not out with a very respectable uh, first class average of twenty seven in batting. <laughs> yes, yeah. You in the in uh, the Ranji Trophy, you would call him an, an all rounder, a low batting all rounder. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he is one of the few uh, special Lanji Trophy bowlers whose bowling average is uh, uh, higher than his batting average uh, yes. by eight points, and I'm like, oh god. <laughs> so... Yes. Oh, and, and fun, uh, fun uh, Nikhil Chopra um, uh, factoid. Uh, you, do you remember in uh, the the 80s? Maybe you've seen this in like compilations of nostalgia uh, ads from Durdashan uh, from the Durdashan era. Yeah. Uh, there was an ad with Kapil Dev uh, for Boost, hmm. where yep. there's this kid, uh, I think at the Firosha Kotla, who's uh, exercising and running around, yeah. and then he says, oh, Boost is the secret of my energy, and then Kapil yeah. Dev comes and he's like, our energy. That, right. kid was Nick, that kid was Nikhil Chopra. I did not know that at all. Wow. This is uh, yes. this is fascinating. I had no yes. clue. So it started off with like, oh, you know, oh, when I grow up, I'm going to play for India just like Kapil. And, uh, you know, he's inspired by Kapil and then he, he does all his exercises, runs and bats and Kapil shows up in the end and says, yeah, you know, the boost is the secret of our energy. He did go on to play. So that, the kid yeah. who was in that ad did go and play for India. Test and, well, one test and uh, one day, many one day. No, but you are right, absolutely, about um, what you said about Maxwell and so forth, that he is essentially that. So I don't know why he was obsessed with not playing Ashwin, and people are putting memes of him, like them doing some sort of a fun joke on things, asking there's no rivalry. No, that clearly is, that doesn't mean that they bring it on the felt. Both of them are thorough professionals, but clearly there was something going on. And I, I don't know what was driving it. I don't know why he thinks he's Clive Lloyd, that he should not play any spinner, uh, that people are going to be intimidated. India has a great fast bowling attack, but we can afford to have a spinner. Yeah, so, and the spinner who regularly gets 50. And so no, no, he refused to play him in the World T20, and then he comes and picks up three wickets in game three, four, and five when India is out. And I'm like, you, I don't care who you are. Against Pakistan, you play a big match player. You yes. play a player against who gives it back. Poor Varun Chakravarti looked like he was completely out of place, and yeah. I don't blame him because he was he didn't you know he wasn't experienced. It's not the same playing against other teams like it is a playing against Pakistan. Exactly, so, and, and like look, look at the the leading bowler for, for Australia, the champion team, Adam Zampa. His average is not great, but he shows up at the, uh, in big matches. He takes wickets from you know, people like Virat Kohli. That's his bunny. Uh, he gets big wickets. He gets them at the right time. He slows down the run scoring. Uh, you, other again, you know, other teams would kill to have an Adam Zappa. He's not very impressive in stats, but yeah. he he pulls it off. 
Uh, you have an off-standing example. You have Ashwin. You refuse to but play him. Here is the thing. I I don't understand why is Indian Indian cricket used to be very um, very open about demoting captains, right? But somehow they do not want to demote Virat Kohli, even though he has not really won anything. He has literally hasn't lost the World Test Championship, and I love Virat Kohli as a player. I just think that he might he is right now a um, he is even not he is worse than Tendulkar was as a captain. And, <laughs> And and I'll I'll tell you why. And people will compare records. I don't look at just the record. You have to look at this squad. I mean, Virat Kohli had MS Dhoni and Rishabh Pant as keepers, and Ridhiman Saha as a backup. Uh, Sachin's keeper in Australia was MSK Prasad, and his mm-hmm. backup was Samir Dighe. Like MSK yes. Prasad had has this amazing, and we've talked about that clip so many times on this podcast. If you really have been under the rock, look up MSK Prasad Bradley. Bradley bowls a full toss at 145 kilometers an hour, and MSK Prasad. There is a full one second after the ball. Like I mean, I'm not one second, maybe less. Like literally, the ball was into the stumps, and then his bat comes down. He did not face anything like this. But so yes. I mean, well, I have a very different memory of MSK Prasad. That uh, you know, we used to joke. Which was the battle match? Yeah, well, it was a match where Vijay Bharadwaj was playing, but uh, yeah. I think. Uh, Yeah, it was in Africa. It was uh, in the LG uh, uh, LG Cup, yeah. as it was called. Uh, the same series in which uh, Sunil Joshi got six uh, five for six against South Africa. Yeah, six for twelve. Oh, five for six. Yes, five sorry. Six. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yes, uh, and uh, so there, there was a fast bowler bowling. There was a big nick. Uh, he caught it, and uh, in throwing it up in the air, it fell down <laughs> from between his gloves. But he completed the appeal. And then the, the umpires had to decide whether it was uh, a catch or not. Oh, and, and from that moment on, uh, people said, "Ah, yeah, MSK is short for Muska Prasad because you know he's been butter in his gloves." Yeah, uh, who was our ex? I don't know if he's still the chairman of selectors, but you know, shock and horror. Uh, um, uh, the, I mean, unbelievable how people like MSK Prasad. Um, have, but so that is what Sachin had to play for, play with, right? We had two decent bowlers in Shrinath and Kumble, and then we had variations of Shrinath in there, like changing fast bowlers. David Johnson, Abi Kurula, Paras Mambre, who's our current bowling coach. I mean, you mm-hmm. you nailed it. It was horrible. So yes. uh, so that's the team that Sachin had. So and he. He, his problem was, which is similar to what Virat, I can do everything myself, right? And uh, and he was trying to do it, and it just that ended up affecting his batting. And that's why I feel that if there is someone else who takes over as captain, maybe Virat won't get to hold the trophies the first, but then for once India might start actually winning trophies. <laughs> yes, yes, because uh, I don't agree with the established wisdom that oh, the the captain should be the best player because you know his place yeah. in the team is secure. The captain should be the one with strategic thinking. The captain should even be a bowler. Like, why do we not give the captaincy to bowlers? We've had good uh, bowler captains before. We had Kapil Dev. We had Anu Kumble. Then there's famous bowling captains in the past: Heath Street, Sean Pollock in our own lifetimes, uh, Imran Khan. That bowlers make good captains because you know a bowler can't defend on a ball. You know bowlers exist to take wickets. Uh, they understand the you know the. Yeah. Mentality is needed to psych out the opposition. There, and then people say, "Oh, when a bowler becomes a captain, he overbowls himself." Well, the batsman is a captain right now. He's overbatting himself as well, uh, wasting balls uh, and. Uh, 
I, I think Kumble was a Kumble was a phenomenal captain in 2008, and um, and he was always. Um, I, I remember when Ishant bowled that dream spell to Ponting. He realized that Sehwag was Ishant's captain in Delhi, and so Sehwag was actually doing the talking. He had deputed Sehwag to talk to Ishant. And you, as a captain, you have to understand Virat Kohli can't be jumping up and down from first slip to mid down and talking to everyone, right? And and mm-hmm. uh, and unfortunately, that's how it is. So maybe uh, maybe that needs to change. I I, I don't know. Um, how it will happen but something needs to something needs to give otherwise you're just looking at a very weird sort of situation where um india is just consistently uh, you know underperforming and and one thing i'll tell you um, uh, before we start wrapping up this podcast that look at all the iconic series um in world cricket right you have both of ashes where mike blairly was the captain um you have the 2001 india versus australia where ganguly was arguably the worst player in that series in our lineup like he was above he was average at best maybe the only player worse than ganguly was sadagopan ramesh but ganguly was a brilliant leader absolutely brilliant so i would never have a team without saurav ganguly in that team so you can look at all iconic series that india have had uh, you know where they've battled and the captain has not really been the best performer it's been the others but strategically the captain has been outstanding it i'm not saying it doesn't happen but very rarely it does happen like people people for you know people talk about uh, uh, clive lloyd right and uh, his captain if you actually look at his personal record it was great but it wasn't nothing to write home about i mean it was excellent for the time but like mm-hmm. if if you look at his odi record right he only had 100 that 102 that he scored i think uh, uh, in the world cup final i for, uh, 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 th- th- he made 102 of 88 phenomenal captain's innings but he's not made a century since he, but he would you reckon he was the best west indian captain or one of the best captains absolute arjuna ranatunga right oh, yes. brilliant captain but most certainly not the best man imran khan in 1992 was probably the most expendable pakistani player in the lineup as a right but the way he mentored wasim akram and a very mediocre pakistani team to go and win the world cup and the way he played with javed miadad that he got the best out of him by pushing him through to the wall was the most interesting and their rivalry is well known it's legendary yes, exactly that your captain should be savvy it doesn't have to be the most talented doesn't have to be the most technically perfect but uh, even in the 90s when uh, uh, there were a couple of series where it was unclear if uh, the captaincy would go to azhar or go to sachin or either way injured there were a couple of ma- uh, series in which ajay jadeja was yeah. uh, was captain yeah. he was a very savvy cricketer uh, we actually very performed pretty guy. well under under ajay jadeja's uh, yeah, temporary yeah. captaincy uh I mean, he comes with other baggage but uh <laughs> yeah but again not the most talented player but a pretty yeah. player uh very good so. player so no and and azhar and sachin's best performance actually came when um, azhar wasn't the uh, the the sort of what uh, azhar was the captain you know well, yeah, that, that was a condition after the 99 world cup when uh, they uh, after the poor performance got uh, knocked out uh, of the super sixes uh, mm. then uh, azhar was dropped from the captaincy and uh, sachin was offered it again he said i will only take it on one condition i don't want azhar in the team ever again because uh, he felt that his leadership was undermined by azhar's yeah. presence uh, yeah. and uh, and of course uh, again other back baggage 
Yeah, and when he came back, and then the match fixing allegations happened, and you know it was all sorts of um, interesting things. But no, you're you're absolutely right about this. So um, I, I remember back then uh, in 2000, after the match fixing uh, uh, scandal broke, uh, then there was uh, <laughs> I don't know which one it was. So, so you remember those uh, cricket cards, the collectible cards? Oh yeah, Trump cards. Yeah, Trump cards from uh, from Boomer and from. Uh, the other uh, chewing gum Center Fresh. Center Fresh. I remember one sent a sales rep uh, in uh, in my neighborhood. Uh, back then I lived in uh, in Mumbai. Uh, the, who was he had a folder of all of the Center Fresh Trump cards and he was like, you know, showing it to people yeah. and giving them little uh, uh, chits and said, uh, uh, we're taking a survey. For uh, who you think should be the new captain, and it had uh, six or seven options. I remember very distinctly, you know, uh, being the renegade among my friends. I picked Robin Singh, and I said, <laughs> like, yeah, I, I want to see this in the in the results. Uh, so sadly, it was like just uh, one or two years before Robin Singh uh, retired. But uh, yeah, it was it was a fun exercise. We need some sort of creative churn and get people thinking. You know, who unfortunately. You know, who so yeah, that's 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 the hope, I guess. Uh, but uh, no, I I agree absolutely. Um, but m coming to the last part of our discussion, um, uh, our recommendations, and then हमारा तो किस्सा मतलब शुरू ही रहेगा. So maybe we'll we'll have another uh, cricket discussion um, after the India South Africa series or something, or, or maybe as a preview. We were supposed to talk about the Ashes, but um, we are way out of time about the Ashes. So before we go into recommendations, quick prediction, Ruchir, uh, uh, who's going to win, Australia or England? And then maybe we'll do a special Ashes podcast in the middle of the Ashes. Who knows? Yeah. Oh, well, who's going to win? I, ideally, it's like Alien versus Predator. Whoever wins, we lose. So you know, it should be one-one. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I don't support England in cricket, in football, in geopolitics, in anything. It yeah. brings me great joy to see them lose. Uh, so yeah, I want Australia to do well. Well. Uh, ideally, Steve Smith should just get for, out for ducks so that he can finally be released from the team. Uh, and uh, what I would love to see is Adam Zampa as a test player. Come on, you know, he's at the peak of his skill. He's not been uh, setting the world on fire in first class cricket, but yeah. if not now, then when? When? Uh, I I uh, I agree. Uh, my my thing. I I've I've supported England in the Ashes a few times only because they were never winning it. uh for a long time uh, but normally i detest supporting england in the ashes for one reason because uh, they act they act like like whining whining uh, cricketers like everything in their life only revolves around ashes and beating australia and australia and india has already done it twice in the last 4 years uh, so i mean you know we can teach you how it's done england if you don't mm -hmm. know uh because they seem to have forgotten that they they themselves beat them 11 years ago but uh, so that's one of the reasons but the only reason why i want to see a very close game is if i if you watch australian broadcast it is more jingoistic sometimes than uh, the congress broadcast on rahul gandhi and it annoys me to no end so just to see their broadcasters get a little bit of you know uh, reality check it it will be a lot of fun to see england at least make a contest out of it i will make one prediction though i think england is going to surprise everyone especially with ben stokes coming out rejuvenated if you ask me to make a prediction it's probably going to be two all or two one to england if england win the first test match if england okay. lose the first test match badly then australia will win 3-1 All right, nice. So those are very specific. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
predictions. Predictions, yeah. But I, th- I think it all depends on when, how the GABA, the GABA tour goes. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, uh, coming to the end, uh, any recommendations you have for our listeners, which is, uh, if you've uh, watched anything or read anything? Uh, I can recommend a board game. So, oh, uh, that yes. would be first. Please do, please do. All right, so let me, uh, maybe I can share my screen. Yeah, please. So I've just ordered this uh, myself uh, last month. So do you see this? So there's a new board game. It was released. Uh, hold on. Let, 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 let me see if I can give you permissions to share your screen. I, I don't know if I... Uh, if oh, uh, wait, wait, it's at my end. Uh, so. Do you see this? There we go. It's oh, wow. Bharat 600 BC. It's an Indian-owned, Indian-made uh, game uh, with uh, hand, handcrafted pieces by artisans. So Bharat 600 BC uh, simulates the world of the Mahajanpad era. So you can play uh, as one of the 16 Mahajanpads of ancient India. It's a very uh, well-thought-out game. You have this wonderful map of the Indian subcontinent. Uh, you have to uh, balance your economy, your army. There's natural disasters. Uh, it's good for two to eight players. So I remember reading about this when it was uh, launched. Uh, there are these wonderful uh, artistic depictions of uh, various in-game uh, events and uh, personas. So I remember uh, when this came out, I was very excited for it. And it's on discount now, so uh, I've ordered it, and I'm looking forward to uh, to playing it now <laughs> with, uh, with my friends and family. So uh, do let me know if you enjoyed it. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, this this bit is very interesting. So it's eco-friendly with original Channa Patna uh, handcrafted wooden components dyed with natural colors. So it actually you know is supporting traditional arts as well not just artistic styles but even the uh, techniques this is a magnificent uh, uh recommendation Rajir. I, uh, I i i was not aware of this and i'm so glad you gave it and uh, i'm 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 sort of um, i i'm right now you know bowled over because it's such a brilliant uh, recommendation uh, my recommendation guys this week is going to be a show that i just watched all of you must have watched called money heist uh, the show comes to a conclusion uh, this weekend uh, that's when the release it's a, it's a fascinating uh, sort of thing and a, a documentary that I've watched, I've recommended a show on Hulu called Dope Sick, but I think uh, the documentary is called America's Greatest Crime or something like that. It is about um, uh, opioids, addiction and stuff. And HBO uh, did a documentary, The Crime of the Century, I'm sorry, that's what it's called, and how the uh, big pharma sold America. It's a, it's a very long documentary. It's two parts. Each part is two hours each. But it is that's how comprehensive and it's made. Uh, I finished it in probably one and a half day because I watched it an hour at a time. It is depressing. Uh, it is disturbing. And you, if you can watch uh, all four hours at a go, it'll, it'll impact you in a totally different way. Good luck to you. I, I couldn't. Physic- I just physically couldn't. But um, it's a, do do watch. So uh, one is going to be a complete popcorn. Maybe watch the documentary first part, then watch two episodes of Money Heist. Feel nice about yourself and then watch the documentary again. I I, I don't know how to uh, 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 else to put it, 
but uh, Rujir, appreciate you joining us. This has been a fantastic discussion, and uh, I hope to have a future one very soon with you. Oh, thank, thanks again for inviting me. It's uh, it's been a while. I was thinking how you were doing, and I'm glad we had this chance to talk about so Absolutely. many. Absolutely. Uh, no, ashes ki deri hai na, so we'll we'll have one very soon. <laughs> yes, excellent. Right. Yeah. And please like, share, subscribe, folks. Uh, write to us, and uh, we'll cover more topics in the podcast. So come and write to us how this board game was. Uh, do do consider buying it thank you everyone